the most exciting thing is that investors are now kind of waking up to the fact that we do need additional tools within our portfolio that are truly diversifying. Uh, trend is obviously a huge good piece of that to answer to that question. But as, you know, as I say, AQR also runs multiple other strategies that also fit the bill. It's it's been exciting in terms of being able to re-engage. There's a lot of energy I, I feel like both on our side and also on the investor side of wanting to delve deeper into these kind of questions on how do I really diversify my portfolio? How do I really you know make an impact in my portfolio if inflation stays high, if equities go through another tough period? So that overall, I think recognition of the fact that we diversifiers are important uh, and we want to. You know, learn more about them and engage with them with our clients. That that's 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 kind of very very exciting for us. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world, so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today, Alan Don and I are joined by Yao Hua Oi, co-head of macro strategies at AQR, as part of our mini-series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and managed futures more broadly. First off, Yao, it is fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we really have been looking forward to our conversation, not least because... One of the topics we're going to be talking about today is something that you've co-written with Cliff Asness, so uh, we can't wait to dig into all of that. But first off, I hope you're doing well where you are. Yes, thank you for having me and uh, doing very well. It's a very warm, unusually warm uh, winter in New York City, where I am based. Yeah, it's great. Exactly. Good stuff. And now, um, before we dive into the topics, uh, Yao, then I think it makes sense to uh, maybe set the stage a little bit for the audience to get a little bit more background. Of course, a lot of people are familiar with AQR, but why don't you give us a few of the highlights in terms of where you are, in terms of the strategies you run, um, and also kind of where where the business stands uh, as we've entered uh, 2023? Sure thing. So yeah, AQR was started in 1998. So we're coming up to our 25th year uh, this year. And uh, we are a large quant asset manager uh, with a very wide range of strategies as it pertains to trend following. Uh, We have been running trend following strategies on a standalone basis since 2008 or so. So that's coming up to about 15 years. Um, And it forms an important part of our overall business. AQR manages about $100 billion, roughly about a little over half of that is in more traditional long-only equity portfolios, and the rest are in different forms of alternatives. Uh, and as we head into 2023, 
trend following represents somewhere in the order of about four to five billion, depending on what, what you count, uh, of our overall AUM. Excellent. I appreciate that. Now, um, our conversation today will be, um, you know, various topics that we want to dig into and, and find out what your thinking is. And uh, we'll kind of alternate between us. Um, so what we normally do at this stage is really let Alan kick it off uh, with the first topic. So over to you, Alan. Great. Thanks, Niels. Um, uh, yeah, you mentioned, you know, uh, AQR has been a very large manager, 100 billion or so. And, and I suppose you talked about being a quantum manager. You're running trend, but a range of different kind of traditional and non-traditional strategies. Is there an investment philosophy, would you say, that underpins all of the strategies or the majority of the strategies that you run? Yeah, I think that uh, we think of ourselves as fundamental investors that use systematic tools to try to take advantage of inefficiencies in markets. Um, and so trend following, it's interesting because it obviously, you know, you could argue that it is not, uh, people don't traditionally think of it as fundamental uh, in, in, in what you typically think of as fundamental research. However, uh, what, what we mean by that is we think there's, um, be, you know, strong behavioral uh, kind of biases and, and things that you can look at that give you a strong fundamental basis for why being able to explain why the strategy makes money through time. And that's important. And obviously, you're trying to unearth lots of different um, returns, I guess, risk premia. Obviously, there's not a belief the trend is the only thing that works. So is, is it, where do you think all of these inefficiencies come from, would you say? Yeah, I think that, you know, AQR beyond trend, we also have been very active in writing research, publishing and running money uh, based on a number of different kind of broad categories of risk premium, including trend, but also things like carry, uh, value, uh, low beta, defensive quality uh, type themes across our strategies. So uh, when we think about sort of what underpins these different risk premium, and why these strategies make money over time, uh, we do think that it's a combination of, again, human behavioral biases uh, that we see, you can see it in, in the, the patterns of, of how markets uh, behave over time, um, and also structural reasons. Uh, we do think that uh, most mark of these active large liquid markets have a range of market participants. Not everyone is a trend follower or a speculator, uh, and some of those um, other players in the space also tend to have certain behaviors or certain structural features that lead to these opportunities. Um, so if you think about trend following, uh, we think that uh, core of it is going to be the tendency for un investors to underreact to new information uh, that's quite well known, well studied. Uh, we see that, you know, that hasn't really changed, even though trend following has been a strategy that's been run for a very long time. Uh, that human behavior at the core of it uh, still exhibits uh, those properties. And then when you think about the structural side, uh, you can think of certain market participants like central banks or commercial hedgers in the commodity markets that may have certain you know, trading behaviors uh, that are not designed to maximize short-term trading profits, uh, but are designed to try to achieve uh, some other outcome. And that also may lead to uh, trends existing. And so these these both behavioral and structural reasons uh, are the reason why we think 
these types of risk premia exist in markets. And and which is, broadly speaking, it's the same types of, maybe not exactly the same reasons, but the same types of reasons for the existence of these risk premia, such as value or carriers in, in, in kind of uh, in equity markets as well. Yes. Um, so when you think about value in equity markets, I think investors' preferences for more exciting names, uh, maybe, again, our tendency to expert extrapolate uh, high growth uh, into the very near future at maybe perhaps a very aggressive rate leads to some consistent, again, over on average, not all the time, overvaluing of growth stocks versus more value stocks. And that creates the opportunity uh, to take the other side of that trade and make money by being long, cheaper stocks versus more expensive stocks over time. And, and the existence of these premia, whether if you want to call them uh, style premia, risk premia, or, or return streams, I mean, it's, it seems to be evident in, lo- in the long-term uh, data series. But <clears throat> obviously, it, the, there's a cyclicality, or, or, or they tend to fluctuate over time. And obviously, I think AQR have been, for a long time, been calling for a, a return of value-add performance, and it felt like a long time in coming. But why is that? Like, And in the same way, why does trend work for periods and then seem to have tough uh, drawdowns. What, what, what's your kind of intuition behind that? Yeah, uh, totally agree. The last five years have felt like a long time uh, uh, because uh, of the difficult periods some of these risk premium, particularly value in stock picking has had. Um, and it is true that these strategies, uh, these different uh, risk premium strategies, while they work over the long term, uh, they aren't standalone, uh, extremely high sharp ratio or high consistency strategies, and they do go through these cycles. Um, and you know, the question of why do they exhibit these cycles, uh, it's a little bit hard to know for sure uh, because uh, we can only you know, take our best guess. So for example, when we look at trend following and its struggles from post the GFC, uh, the decade from 2009 through 2018 was a unusually poor period for trend following overall. Uh, it didn't, you know, it still made money over that decade, but uh, just not at the same rate as we had seen in the decades prior to that. Um, and at EQR, we like to, as much as we can, uh, do a systematic study uh, of whatever reasons people might throw out as possibilities for why a strategy underperforms for a long time. And so for trend, you know, we wrote a paper called You Can't Always Trend When You Want uh, back uh, at the end of that decade. Uh, And our finding from the paper was that uh, the strategy was still, you know, when you look at long-term history, that that particular decade was tough, mainly because the percentage of market moves that were large in any given year was unusually low. Uh, versus history. And I think upon more study, we've also made some connection to why that happened to the low levels of macroeconomic volatility in that decade. So when I mean macro- macroeconomic volatility, I mean the, uh, the sort of rate of uh, uncertainty or the standard deviation of things like you know, developed market GDP changes or inflation changes. Uh, everything was quite muted for a decade. Uh, and kind of coupled with that, you ended up having a relatively much lower percentage of markets in any given year show large moves. And that's sort of like the necessary ingredient for trend following to do well. So you, you don't need all markets to move a lot, but you do need some proportion of markets to 
to have some larger moves to make money and that I was missing that decade. Sure. And I believe you guys have written a paper, there's been a number of papers around about kind of 100 years of trend following and 200 years. And I, I think 100 years was was your one, if, if, if I'm not wrong. Mm-hmm. So like looking at the 100 years, how, how tough was that decade relative to in, in that 100 year period? Uh, yeah, I mean, we wrote that paper uh, in 2012. Um, so actually, it still was the earlier part of the, the decade. So I think when we wrote it, it wasn't so evident yet that the following next five or six years was still going to be uh, quite a lean stretch. But uh, even because we had the ability to go back much further, we did see that there were some other decades uh, much more earlier in the in the sample, like you know, so closer to the 80, 90 year period prior to when we published the paper, where you did have some long stretches, decade long stretches, where the sharp ratio or the performance of trend following also similarly struggled for a considerable amount of time. So it wasn't un- the, the point. You know, one of the points that we tried to make in the paper was that you know underperformance for some long stretches. Is not something unprecedented. It has happened before. It can happen again. Uh, but that historically, uh, we had seen the strategy sort of recover and do well after that lean stretch. Uh, so I think it's a helpful, uh, you know, it's just, you know, helpful too to help people understand that it doesn't mean that just because the strategy struggles for a while, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's been arbitraged away or that somehow the risk premium has been eroded. Uh, that, that's a common you know, kind of, I think, question that investors have after long periods of underperformance, which which is a legitimate question. So I think the paper helped show some empirical evidence that following long lean periods, there were sort of resurrections or revival periods for the strategy as well. Yeah, I think the higher powers knew that we were going to talk to you today, Yao, because in my Twitter feed this morning, and it wasn't even from Cliff himself, but there was a quote from Cliff saying, nothing is linear. The world doesn't move towards what we think is rational a little bit every day. The best way to manage volatility is to have a strategy that you can stick with. If you believe in it, it wouldn't matter how poorly it did for a while. And so... It kind of brings me back to this question that I teased up earlier because it is a question we've asked all the managers and it relates to a paper you wrote with Cliff about, you know, I think it came out uh, in in Q4 uh, of last year. And um, partly you raised the question about whether managers in general uh, have, and, and trend followers in particular, have become too concerned about Sharp. And then you also talk about or, or about this dual mandate uh, or whether managers really sh- should both be able to deliver high absolute returns but also uh, some level of crisis alpha so given you're here as one of the authors I'd love to hear your 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 thoughts on that um, and then maybe also um, some of the uh, why you've chosen uh, from, and this is from memory so correct me if I'm wrong why have you chosen to kind of say no we're going to stick with pure trend so t- tell us a little bit more about that yeah no uh, so I think uh, what the point we were trying to make in that piece was that there can be a trade-off at, you know when it comes to trying to in- improve the sharp ratio improve the consistency of a trend strategy by adding something that is different from price trend. And uh, many of these strategies that we've, we see just through our analysis of, let's say, the SG Trend Index or other manager returns, 
uh, is that some of these uh, different additional return sources may compromise or dilute the convexity payoff profile uh, that comes with a more traditional price trend strategy. Um, and I think that most investors who today, uh, who especially institutional investors, do care about this dual mandate. Uh, they do want positive returns from a trend strategy, but they also care greatly about its performance uh, during periods of large equity market drawdowns. Um, and so I think our point in the paper, I would say it's, it wasn't so much that uh, pure trend is the only right way to do trend following. In fact, in the same piece, uh, we explicitly talked about how AQR has also evolved our own thinking on this uh, in trying to add other types of uh, return streams that are not simple pure price trend to our own trend following strategies in hopes of delivering a more consistent return. Uh, but I think we have chosen to be very selective uh, on what type of additional return streams we think make sense to marry with price trend uh, in a trend following offering. Uh, and so we've sort of chosen consistently over time to exclude things that we've been running in other style premia, risk premia strategies like carry, uh, which we know has a positive, sharp positive return feature. It's not highly correlated with trend following. However, it does tend to suffer during periods of equity market stress. So we've chosen to exclude strategies like currency carry from our trend offerings, uh, and that's still the case today. But uh, in recent years, we actually have been quite active in adding what we think of as still trend-based strategies with a convex profile, but not your traditional price trend uh, in liquid markets uh, kind of offerings within our trend following strategy. So the two things that I would say that we feel uh, we like uh, that both keep the kind of properties of trend following, the convex, positive, sharp, low correlation, uh, and help improve the sharp ratio of a trend strategy are what we call economic trend following, uh, which is the idea of looking at macro macroeconomic data and the trends in that to forecast price movements going forward rather than just past price returns. And the second is alternative market trend following, which again is, is really an application of trend following to much less trafficked markets. So that that's not a different investment philosophy, clearly. It's more of an extension of the same investment philosophy, but you do get some meaningful diversification when you go away from the large liquid, you know, equity, currency, uh, and commodity markets into smaller markets as well. Yeah. So you started out by raising the question, you know, um, have managers become too concerned about uh, Sharp? I think in the paper you talk about that uh, certainly there's a risk because uh, some managers did include other stuff to deal with, with this issue. But if I understand you correctly, you're actually also in a sense now trying to Oh, you're now also kind of acknowledging that you have to be concerned with Sharp because it's a business decision to some extent, right? There's It's too painful because that's what we hear from a lot of the guests we've had on that I think we all love trend following. But there is definitely a, um, a growing um, acknowledgement that perhaps it is just too hard to hold for investors in its purest form. And I think also to some extent that there's a little bit of a, a business consideration um, because nobody wants to see their AUM fluctuate too much 
because of the return streams are so lumpy. Uh, so is is that fair that you kind of, uh, even though you're saying, yeah, we're doing it slightly differently or we're not going to sort of, but you also have to kind of uh, acknowledge that, that sharp, and we can talk about that a little bit more, but it does play a role uh, in terms of um, people's ability to hold on to it. Um, and I guess the, what, what, I guess what Cliff said in the quote I, I mentioned earlier, and I guess also uh, my own conviction is that, you know, the best strategy after all is probably the one you can hold on to <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, talk, feel free to talk a little bit more about those sort of how you weigh these things up in the end. No, absolutely. Again, I, I think the point of the piece was to say that, you know, when, you know, I think when thinking about how to make a trend strategy have a better sharp, which again, is very, it's important for people's ability to hold on to the strategy. Uh, I think we, we just want to be thoughtful about trying to make sure that things that we include actually enhance or at least retain the same kind of convex profile, sort of the second part of the dual mandate and not compromise. And that really was the main message, not so much that, uh, you know, that pure price trend is the only form that people should consume trend following in. And I think to your point, we saw ourselves through that lean decade for trend following from 2009 to 2018, uh, that uh, the whole industry suffered large redemptions, uh, especially toward the end of that period from trend following. And it really was a pity because uh, in 2022, when Trend had its best ever year in history, you know, I can't tell you how many clients or ex-clients uh, kind of, you know, probably had some measure of regret that they couldn't hold on to it. Um, and so I think the ability for us or any other manager to try to improve the sharp ratio of their Trend offering by being thoughtful about ways to enhance it while still, main, you know, trying to uh, make sure that that dual mandate is being fulfilled is is a very important business consideration. But also, again, frankly, for again at the end of the day, for the end client, if they can hold on to it uh, through a you know kind of leaner stretch for price trend, uh, we think they're they're going to be better positioned to actually reap the benefits uh, in the portfolio context of allocating to it in the first place. So, totally agree with your sentiment on that. Yeah, and and then now you mentioned something that I think is really important um, because you you mentioned the word portfolio context, and I'm thinking here. I know that we, when we talk about sharp, we talk about how can we improve the um, sharp of the individual strategy, meaning people will look at line items. But first of all, I don't think, and you will know this much better than I do, but I don't think sharp was invented uh, for single strategies. Uh, I think it's a portfolio tool. So. Uh, so are we doing ourselves, are we being too short-sighted by saying, well, well, okay, let's try and improve the sharp of our strategy so people can hold on to it? Or should we instead, and, and you guys obviously are the masters of putting out great research here, I mean, shouldn't we try and change the narrative and say, listen, let's talk about what this strategy does for the portfolio sharp. Forget about the individual line items. What it's really about is how the sharp ratio of your portfolio changes when you include this strategy. And I think we all know, because this is just going back to John Lindner's 1983 paper, and 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 so you could say nothing has changed in that long period of time, 40 years, but it really is what it's all about. So how can we have, and I have to take that on my own uh, shoulders since I've tried for the last 30 plus years, how, how can we have failed to get in investors to see it 
in a different light instead of looking at us as a single line item. Yeah, no, that remains a challenge, as you said, after 30 years of educating and trying to advocate for that portfolio view of the value add of trend following as opposed to being so solely focused on the standalone returns. I think that's a battle all of us as trend following managers are still continuing to fight the good fight. I think uh, there is still a lot of continued uh, efforts to try to remind investors that uh, when you look at the value add of trend following, don't look at it in isolation, look at it in the context of the overall portfolio. Um, And yet, I think the reason why that continues to be difficult, uh, some of it is, you know, probably has to do with the way organizations are set up. You know, we work with predominantly uh, institutional clients. And, you know, much as we would love to have the clients ultimately care most about how the overall plan assets are performing, the way things are structured in the real world Uh, Oftentimes, investment staff are split up into different uh, segments where they have responsibility over only a subset of the investments within the broader portfolio. So for example, you have the public markets team versus the private markets team. And then within the public markets team, you might have the hedge fund team. And within that, you might even have for a larger plan, people who focus on specific quantitative or uh, global macro trend strategies. And so and then you you have the issue of benchmarking, right? Which which is another interesting topic uh, for any any strategy, but trend trend in particular as well. Uh, which is that people have a benchmark that they often need to list when they make any kind of you know asset allocation or investment within the broader plan. Uh, and a lot of times the focus is on how the performance of their specific investments beat the benchmark, uh, without a lot of regard to whether you know, the overall portfolio benefit is is great enough. In other words, in a given year, uh, if trend following was hugely additive to a portfolio, like we saw last year, uh, sometimes uh, the, the investment committees or boards may be more focused on, did your trend allocation beat the trend benchmark, as opposed to taking a step back and saying, wow, uh, you know, this trend allocation overall was hugely helpful for the portfolio. So I, I would say there are a few structural reasons that make it more challenging in, in real life for you know allocators and investors to really sort of say, well, I, I really only care about the overall portfolio impact and I can kind of you know be a little bit less pay a little bit less attention to the line item risk. And in reality, the line item risk matters a lot. And that's the that's the that's the practical reality. Absolutely. Alan, before I turn over to you, um, I do want to stay with this uh, a little bit longer, Yao, because um, I've started my travels uh, this year and I'm talking to uh, clients and potential clients. And uh, with the potential clients in particular, there are kind of two themes that um, that strikes me. One is that they really do look at trend following as a trade, right? So they try and kind of time it and 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 then the, and and then once you get that sense, then the argument is also ah, not sure we want trend following now because it did so well last year. <laughs> so again, given all your experience with uh, with with talking to uh, investors uh, and writing great re- research, how should we help people get away from thinking about an allocation to trend following, and and also this this that there are lack of ability, of course, in reality to time it, uh, but then their wish to try and time this uh, these investments. How, how, how do you deal with this? 
Yeah, that's a challenge that uh, I think is still prevalent today. I, I feel like we, we try to, you know, talk to investors and, and educate them in a few different ways. One uh, is, you know, showing some just empirical evidence based on past trend returns. So, for example, uh, in a recent piece we put out called Trend Following Why Now, one of we tried to address one of these questions, which is, should I expect some underperformance in trend going forward following such a good year in 2022. So, you know, one of the simple analysis we show in that piece is showing what the returns to trend following strategies tend to be following sort of different performance periods, following a good period, following a bad period. And we showed that there's really not a whole lot of predictability uh, or relationship there. Uh, So it's sort of one way to say, well, historically, at least, uh, there doesn't seem to be any empirical evidence that trend following is going to underperform following a good year. Uh, so at least the data is on your side. You don't that shouldn't be a major concern. Uh, and then the second thing I think, which is more maybe more fundamental, which is more long term nature of the strategy, is that I think it's uh, it's a strategy that's difficult to time. Uh, the way that I think I like to try to make that appeal to investors is it's really no different from any other strategy. I mean, I guess one of the, you know, in, in easy ways to kind of contrast it would be to equity markets. I mean, because everyone is familiar with that. Uh, and most people, I think, have lived through enough cycles to admit that they're probably not very good at timing their overall equity allocation and that it, you know, they're better off holding a more consistent allocation through time rather than you know, getting completely in and out of the equity market. That, that's a pretty difficult thing to get, right? Um, and trend following is really no different in that sense. Uh, you know, it's in, in some sense, it's maybe even harder because you don't have, for example, like a valuation metric, uh, even though that's not, that's not a very powerful timing metric or very accurate timing metric, but at least you have some fundamental valuation-based measures you could argue you want to use to decide when to be overweight or underweight equity. So trend following... Uh, there's even less of you know any kind of fundamental metric you can use to decide when to time the strategy. So I think just helping people reframe it and think about it more similarly to how they would think about allocating to stocks and bonds. I think everyone, I would say most people are more conditioned to believe that it makes sense to have a strategic allocation to stocks and bonds. And I think trying to appeal and make the same argument for trend following is is helpful as well. Yeah, I no, appreciate that. Alan, let's dig into yeah. some... Well, maybe just to follow answer. up on a couple of points there before we go on, um, just to, uh, around the whole idea of economic trend following, which, um, you know, is obviously... I mean, I can see the the, the, the logic for it in, in, in your explanation of trends, you know, an underreaction that presumably will see trends emanating in the macro data that investors will underreact to. But is there a risk, you know, from a purist's perspective, you know, one of the pure trend followers would believe in the price alone and following the price. And obviously, you have to make some kind of connection between the economic trends and, and then putting expressing those into a trade. So how do you think about that risk of moving away from the purity of trend following by going down what other people might call it effectively a quant macro approach? Yeah, no, I, I agree that it uh, it is definitely not a conventional path. Uh, in fact, when we look at you know the SG Trend Index and again the returns of most of the managers in that index, 
we don't see a big loading or a big ex- you know, exposure to this economic trend idea. So I would say AQR is probably a bit more different from, from the peer group probably at this moment from having a much more significant allocation to this idea of economic trend. And uh, even for us, that's been a process of evolution. We didn't start off this way. We did start off very much as more pure price trend managers 15 years ago. And over time, I think as we've done more research and lived through more market cycles, we have uh, in, you know, gotten more comfortable, more confident in the, uh, the benefit of diversifying away from pure price trend and also using these economic trend concepts. So definitely, totally agree, it is not a pure risk approach uh, to price trend. Um, but I think th- the reason why we see it as still being very much in the same family of, of investment strategies, as you said, it's because of that underreaction premise. Um, so if you think of it on one hand, if one of the core reasons why trend following makes money is because investors underreact to new information and take take time to absorb that new information into prices, uh, you can think of that as a phenomena that is hard to measure very accurately. And so we think prices, looking at past prices is one way to measure that underreaction. But looking at kind of the economic data itself that drives prices uh, could be another way to uh, measure it uh, that that is diversifying. So to give you an example, at the beginning of 2022, uh, you know, we saw a big divergence between price trend following and economic trend following signals in the equity space. And that's, uh, you know, probably, you know, pretty straightforward for price trends. Uh, they wanted to be very long equities because we had a fantastic 2021 for most global equity markets. However, on the economic trend following side, what we saw was a, uh, a kind of rising inflationary environment and tighter monetary policy trends that had been forming throughout the last half of 2021. Uh, and so, again, from a classic underreaction perspective, the economic trend signals were essentially saying uh, these tighter monetary policy, higher surprises to inflation tend to be bad for equity markets and bond markets too, but let's focus on equities. However, investors weren't reacting to that yet. Um, so it hasn't even shown up in the prices yet. Uh, so in that sense, you know, it, it gave a very different signal from price trend following in that particular case it ended up being kind of the leading indicator and prices eventually caught up after the first couple of months of 2022. And price trends also switched to being short equities fairly soon after that. Um, so I think it's it's another way of measuring underreaction as, as we now in hindsight, we can say that, oh, okay, clearly inflation was a big problem. It took a while for markets and investors to really understand that in 2022. Uh, and that's why, you know, prices didn't really start falling till the beginning of 2022, even though the inflationary pressures had been building since 2021. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting kind of contrast, I think, to think about that concept of underreaction. Can I, can I interject something here? Sorry, Alan, to interrupt your flow here. But, but what you're mentioning is very interesting. But then I look at the fact that the FTSE, and I think the DAX, recently made new all-time highs, and inflation is still here, uh, so here you could say, well, you know, price action actually got something. I mean, so how, how we've seen a few surprises, let me put it this way, where the data in the last three or four years, with, starting with COVID, where you would think if you looked at the data, you wouldn't expect equities to do what they did. 
And and now we have again a situation where high inflation and and history might say one thing, but actually when you look at the prices, we've ended up seeing record highs in in a few equity markets. So it is for me a big departure away from price uh, when you look at that. How do you get comfort uh, that that because I also remember sorry to be throwing all of this at, at, at you, Yao, but I also remember a few years ago there was this uh, love for what's called systematic global macro. Everybody loved it because they could talk about GDP numbers, unemployment numbers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then we went through a period of like six months, and these strategies just kind of fell apart. And you know, so how do you get the comfort? in terms of data uh, or prices reacting to to the economic data the way you would think it would yeah no uh i think that's those are all totally fair points and just to be clear i don't think that in our view it's not that economic trend following is going to get it right more often than price trend following we see both strategies long term as having probably a similar efficacy in being able to predict market trends um, so even in the way that we construct our portfolios, we do give them fairly equal importance when it comes to thinking about weighing the, the you know, allocation to these different signals. Um, and so to your point, you can think of plenty of other examples where the economic data perhaps was too slow to react or perhaps got it wrong and markets sort of behaved a completely different way from what the economic data would imply. Uh, and in those cases, potentially price trends would have done much better than economic trends when it came to predicting those trends. So I think the way that we get comfort uh, with the economic trend following concept, it's it's quite similar to how we get comfort with the price trend concept. Uh, There is definitely a lot of empirical research that we do that starts off with a fundamental premise. Uh, So for example, with price trend, it's the idea of underreaction. So we believe that price movement should continue, we have sort of a hypothesis, then we can test it. And importantly, we can test it in many places, not just in one or two markets, but in many asset classes and many individual markets. And we see sort of a consistent pattern. It's not perfect everywhere. It doesn't work in every market all the time. But over a long history, over many markets, you clearly see that price trend following has strong empirical backing. Uh, And so when it comes to economic trend following, I think it's very much the same concept. We gain confidence through kind of being able to study these economic trend indicators over long histories, over many different markets. Uh, It is definitely, I would say, one, you know, there is a little bit more complexity perhaps uh, versus price trends because price is very straightforward. Every asset has a price. And if you look back at the last three months or 12 months, that's the same for every asset class. Here, you do have to do some mapping, as you said. For example, if inflation is rising. Uh, is that going to be good or bad for stocks and bonds? You do have to make some assertion uh, and test that. Um, and, and so it's not, you do have that one extra link you have to make between the data and the asset class performance. But what we see is that that link is actually quite consistent over time and very intuitive. Um, so I, I think that helps us get gain confidence around the the efficacy of these strategies as well. Okay, I appreciate that. Back to you, Alan. If uh, we talked about the 100 years of trend following, uh, any plans to write 100 years of economic trend following? Or is is it as robust, would you say? Yes. Uh, well, being AQR, we, we like writing. And, and uh, we 
actually already published a piece about six years ago, I think called A Half Century of Macro Momentum, okay, which is based on this concept <laughs> of economic trend following. So that paper is out there and it does look at these concepts applied over the last 50 years. We don't have 100 years because we don't have good economic data for, for a lot of markets uh, going back much further than that. And uh, we are planning to put out a new piece uh, in the next few months that specifically looks at economic trend following as a standalone strategy. And again, we'll, we'll look back as, as using as much data as we can and try to show both its longer term history, robustness, as well as re- its relationship to price trend following. So that, that should be an interesting piece to, to, to contrast with the century of, of evidence piece that we wrote on price trends. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting that it works so well because you would nearly think that, that it, it wouldn't in the sense that, you know, if you pick up the, the newspaper and they're saying, you know, the, the simple naive commentary is, you know, the, the economy's getting better, it's going to be good for stocks or inflation's coming down, it's going to be good for bonds. You say, well, come on, that's all priced in, so you can't trade off that. But actually what you're saying is that these trends are persistent enough that, that those simple analyses may have some validity. validity. Yeah, no, it, it's it's pretty interesting. I, I guess I'm sure people say the same thing about trend following. Like it's such a simple strategy. You know, how could it still work? Isn't it like as technology, as information processing happens faster, shouldn't the prices reflect information already? You know, sort of why would it take three months or two months to reflect some new information? So I think yeah, it's, it's very fascinating to see that uh, you know, these strategies, while they may be well known, they may be, and you know, our technology or information flow has gotten faster. Uh, there is still some behavioral biases like anchoring to the past, having a hard time changing our expectation uh, of, you know, it's the same thing if you, if you think about investors having a hard time maybe thinking about yields at 4% when it used to be at 2% uh, for a 10 year bond, and it takes a long time to, or some time to mentally adjust to that being the norm. You could also think of it from the economic data side for people to really believe that we're in a, you know, moving into a different regime. Uh, it's not instantaneous. And so asset prices don't reflect that. I think another interesting piece about the economic data is also that you find that uh, it tends to be autocorrelated as well. So meaning that when you think about, for example, how professional forecasters uh, might change their forecast for next year's inflation target, uh, you see that that economic forecast doesn't change overnight, even if we're in a regime shift. It tends to sort of gradually catch up. And so that that itself is also kind of a feature or how central banks, you know, change their tack on tightening or loosening. Uh, as we all know, it's it's not overnight. It, it is more of a gradual, let's wait and see, let's adjust based on the data approach. And that often leads to trends itself in the data as well. And obviously, this is you know this evolution in this trend system is a product of of research. Um, so I'm curious to hear, hear more about the process for how you unearthed and kind of researched this kind of economic trend following. I mean, particularly from the perspective that it seems a lot of the kind of style premia that that that, that you look at it AQR is very much in kind of the the, the academic kind of factors that, that you know. Fama French type uh, factors and trend things that people have known about and are kind of documented um, in academic literature. Where 
I don't know if economic trend following is documented to the same extent. I, I, it strikes me maybe not. So was that something that you, you, there was always a suspicion that that was going to be something, uh, an opportunity, and it just took time to to kind of um, exploit it? Or how, you know, to, tell us about the process for deciding that this was an area of research and finding that it was successful. Yeah, I think that for us, we had been researching and trading on, again, more in our global macro, quant macro hedge funds for a long time on these types of data, these types of signals. And yeah, to be fair, when we started trading them a long time ago, I don't think we thought of them as trend. We didn't call them trend. They were just part of a quant global macro strategy. I think it's sort of over time as we... Uh, saw some of the return characteristics of the trend component of those global macro pieces, the ones that were betting on underreaction, the ones that were betting on continuation. Uh, We started to, in our own work, started to make the linkage to price trends more closely, both from an investment philosophy standpoint and also from an empirical returns kind of relationship standpoint. And we did see that correlation. I mean, economic trend following is about 0.4 and 0.5 correlated to price trend. So it's not a completely distinct strategy. It's definitely closely related. Uh, But again, as I mentioned earlier, if you think about the fact that we're trying to capture trends and it's noisy, we don't always have such a great measurement. We just think that using more measures beyond just past prices uh, actually helps a little bit diversify the ways that we try to measure what the underlying true trends in markets are, whether that's reflected in prices, reflected in fundamental data, and that potentially that's why kind of using a combination maybe gives us a better prediction uh, of where markets are going to go in combination over time on average. But really for us, uh, it was more of a gradual process. We didn't set out to say, okay, we need a new trend strategy that's not prices. Let's try to invent one. It was more more the case that we have been trading on these strategies for a long time already, not calling them trend, but then over time making that linkage between the two. Um, and so I think when it comes to your question on the academic sort of factor piece, I think it's interesting because uh, I think for AQR, we've always thought of ourselves as trying to actually bring a lot of this research that we do uh, into the academic space. So when, it, when you say trend, uh, you know, as a well-known academic style. I mean, I believe that, you know, while there were papers on it, I think when we wrote the first paper on time series momentum, you know, I, I co-wrote it with uh, my co-authors, Lasse Pedersen and Toby Moskowitz. At that time, there wasn't a lot of, I would say, academic rigorous papers on actually focused on time series momentum. Um, and so now it's it's obviously well-known. There's many, many academic papers uh, on this, on on that investment style, so that's one of the fun things about the job. I think as well is that we've been able to uh, take some of that research and put it out in the public and actually get a lot of engagement through that process as well. So things that maybe were once thought of as more black box today are at least you know just like pharma, French in, in value or size. You know we we have that trend academic factor that's that's commonly accepted now. Maybe just one final one on this topic before we pan it back. Um, obviously, a lot of this uh, is premised on the underreaction of investors. And then, you know, 
intuitively we also observe then kind of the overreaction at the end and and trends extending uh and obviously you've been big kind of proponents of of value um in in equity uh, uh, investing but has that kind of concept been more difficult to find in the futures markets in terms of exploiting overreaction in 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 markets and kind of mean reversion would you say yeah, I think that's been an interesting area for us. Uh, I would say in the future space, we find that mean reversion and valuation metrics tend to be more useful when it comes to applying them in a relative value context. So kind of comparing one equity index versus another, comparing one mar- one markets, one country's bond markets versus another, we do see that the concept of you know mean reversion or reverting to fair value does have some predictive power there. And we do use those types of valuation metrics more heavily within our relative value global macro strategies. But when it comes to directional macro or trend-based strategies, uh, I would say that our research so far has shown that kind of long-term mean reversion uh, strategies are less uh, less profitable or harder. it's harder to make money on them compared to relative value comparisons. Yeah, I want to try and 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 I don't know the I don't remember all the details here, Yao. So I, I I need your help a little bit on this. But how I remember right this minute when we speak is that uh, AQR came out, and I don't exactly know the year, um, and basically said we have this premium premium called trend momentum, and we can offer this in a. Um, in a much cheaper package. That's how I remember it. And I don't remember exactly uh, what fees you offered back then, but as far as I recall, you were one of the first to come out with a flat fee, essentially management fee only version of trend. And so I guess what I'm trying to say here is that, do you think we're shooting ourselves a little bit in the foot when we make investors believe that what we do is so easy that we don't have to charge very much for it. Because when I when we speak to uh, a lot of our peers, and I have a question that I always ask them, I'll ask you again late, later today, uh, in terms of you know what's, what's the one thing to hear about trend following that they really disagree with. And a lot of them have actually come back and said, well, I really disagree with people thinking it's easy. It's not, and it's expensive to do. Now, you had a lot of success with that, you raised a lot of assets from coming out because probably you were disrupting our industry to some extent. So my question is twofold. One, do you think we're giving the wrong impression to investors that this is so easy, you don't have to pay much for it? And also, it leads me to the question about capacity, meaning, I mean, how much money uh, can a, you know can we can a manager manage in trend following without it actually becoming, a little bit of an issue, so to speak. So I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, on on these two things. Yeah, no, this is a uh, definitely, I think, something that we were known for, maybe not in the most, uh, not very popular way among the manager community. Well, among investors, I'm sure. (laughs) But it was very popular for investors, I think, right? If you think about the evolution that we had um, 15 years ago before AQR, was a trend-following manager. Uh, I think, I believe the fees for just any trend-following strategy were quite high. And fast forward to today, investors sort of have a pick of great managers, great strategies, uh, and not just in the 
hedge fund space, but even in the mutual fund, the usage space, the more liquid, daily liquid format. I think that was also one of the things that we pioneered was sort of saying not only can we run this uh, in a flat fee manner with with more transparency on what is actually underneath the strategies, but we can do it in a more liquid format. And that has also, I think, given investors much better choice and much you know better options, frankly. Um, so, you know, I, I think we've done some good for the investors of the world and uh, maybe kind of at the expense of some excess profits for the whole industry and ourselves in that in that in that process. But uh, to answer your questions more directly on your first question on, you know, do you think that investors now maybe believe this is easy and um, perhaps it kind of devalues the strategy to some degree? Um, I, I think that our take on these things has been that I think it's quite clear that these strategies are not easy to run. Um, so obviously running a real life strategy is very different from running a paper portfolio or academic paper, right? There's a lot of actual real life considerations when it comes to trading, implementation, risk management, data, uh, systems, uh, you know, all, everything that's involved, you, you know it quite well, uh, that is expensive to run. And so there, there is a compensation that managers need in order to be able to run these at, at an excellent level. And that's no different from AQR than any any other place in the world. So I, I think the point of trying to demystify or put out kind of academic style versions, uh, again, it's not meant to devalue the strategy. It's really meant to say that, well, you know, at the core of the strategy, here is a, you know, here is some explanation of why trend following has worked for a hundred years, why it has this type of return pattern. Here are some of the ideas behind why these patterns exist. And here's some empirical evidence. If you run a simplistic or simple version, uh, what it could look like in history. Uh, But that's really just a starting point. I think any serious allocator who then decides, okay, uh, it's helpful to look at that evidence, get confidence, especially from a portfolio construction asset allocation perspective, that, that makes it into a more useful tool, I think, for allocators rather than just a manager saying, you know, look at my great returns, uh, trust me. And, you know, when it's sort of more isolated, it's a little bit harder to get a lot of confidence that this is something that you want to allocate a large piece of the portfolio to. But I think when you're able to show some more strong academic evidence, put it in a public domain where there's a lot of debate around it, uh, you can get broader adoption. So, in a sense, like you could say, if we successfully make trend following more widely adopted because there are there is more academic evidence that people can lean on to make a case to their investment boards, investment committees about the allocation, I think that's a good thing, even if the net result is perhaps there could be some misinterpretations that this is easy to do. I think Again, most allocators after actually allocating realize there are this huge dispersion across managers and that it's not, you know, it's not really, it's not a beta in any sense of the word because there is no simple version you can buy off the shelf that gives you the same return as another manager. Um, and so I, I think it's it's been an interesting area for sure. But um, I think, uh, you know, I think our our belief is that there is a core strategy, there's a core factor behind it. But when it comes to practical implementation, and trying to actually generate profits in markets, uh, it's never easy. Yeah. 
It's interesting you say there's a factor behind it because we've also had great guests on who say <laughs> that there's no factor. So, I mean, it's 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 quite interesting. The other thing I wanted just to ask you, again, uh, not not to to kind of pick on AQR for doing something that that uh, that that I disagree with because in a sense I don't, but when we go out and we put these strategies into super liquid packages, daily liquidity. I mean, we all know that no no investor should have, use daily liquidity really for anything, especially not when it comes to a long-term strategy like trend following. So are we helping investors by doing it really? Or, or, or why do they need daily liquidity? Yeah, I think it, a lot of that has to do more with, um, I guess, in different jurisdictions, in different countries, what structures are most accessible for investors. So for example, in the US, um, you know, depending on whether you're invested in an LP or mutual fund, there are very different, very different process, I would say in general, it's fair to say that being able to invest in a mutual fund is a much more plug and play um, kind of approach. Uh, you don't have to meet as many requirements, you can get it on platforms. Uh, the process is much you know, more quick quicker. Uh, exactly, The goal is not for people to trade in and out of the strategy uh, on a daily basis, uh, but it just so happens that in order to provide that much more uh, kind of straightforward investment structure, it has to be in a daily liquid vehicle. So it's not so much that there's something about the daily liquidity that makes it especially suitable or attractive for investors. It's more that the mutual fund structure is a very good one. And now you have also ETFs in the managed future space and structure does matter for increasing access. Uh, so if you think about pre those days, it was probably much less likely that a traditional investor who's not you know, extremely wealthy and who's not institutionally investing in LPs would invest in managed futures at all. Whereas today, again, I think there are, uh, you know, it's a much easier choice and there are easier process and there are actually good options in the US 40X space for someone to be able to invest in managed futures without a huge dollar commitment. And that, that is, I think, valuable uh, for, for investors. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. I think it is good that we can get a, a broader adoption for sure, that that, that is a, a positive thing. I um, just, just before I hand it back to Alan, I wanted to ask you a little bit about in your trend strategy and in trend strategies, generally speaking, we there's a lot of focus on um, kind of the signal generation part of it. Uh, we always get questions on that. I also think there's a few unsung heroes that are very important when you do trend following, such as how you deal with correlations, how you deal with volatility, and maybe even volatility more so now because we've had kind of unusual periods of volatility, frankly, uh, in the last decade or so. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach uh, the this part of, of, of developing a trend strategy uh, on your side? Yeah, no, definitely the portfolio construction involved in building a trend strategy is important, especially as it relates to diversification and risk management. Uh, I think that it's funny because uh, sometimes you see uh, articles uh, these days that uh, will say, well, CTAs are going to buy hundreds of billions of equities today because the moving average of you know, the 20-day has passed the 200-day. And I think there's sort of a, you know, even till today with all the information out there, there's a lack of appreciation for all these details that go into actually building a real trading strategy that takes into account transactions costs and market liquidity uh, and risk conditions. 
Um, and so that's a big focus for us as well. Uh, we do think that beyond trying to come up with new signals, beyond trying to add new markets to a portfolio, those are things that could be helpful. Uh, absolutely, if you are able to uh, have better models to forecast correlations, volatilities, and be able to manage your risk at the portfolio level better, uh, that is also crucial in being able to run and generate a better return stream over time. So, um, yeah, I think I, I I think that again in real life there might be a lack of appreciation for how much these things matter, um, and that that could be one difference again between what I'm sure a lot of managers on your show will talk about how it's you know there you can you know there are people who can say well I can just take a bank swap or bank index that has very simplistic rules. Uh, but they may not be adaptable to changing correlations, changing market conditions as much as a, a manager can uh, with, with a more sophisticated uh, underlying you know, set of models for forecasting risk. So that's that's another aspect that I think uh, is, is underappreciated at times. Yeah, great point, uh, Yao, for sure. Where do you want to go next, Alan? Well, I might I might dive in and ask one of your questions, if, if I might, because um, trend replication is has come to the mutual fund world. We've been talking about, you know, better access to mutual fund investors. And obviously, the, the, this fund that raised a lot of assets in the mutual fund space last year was uh, replicates uh, trend following. And, and, I, and I guess approaches things from a similar philosophy of trying to bring this type of return stream at in in a liquid format at, at a lower cost. Um, so, I mean, what's the what's your perspective on the merits and pitfalls of replication as applied to trend following? And it's it's, it's not just uh, replicating the the CTA index. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an interesting area. I feel like even call it fifteen years ago, I think there was a you know kind of strong interest in hedge fund replication, not just in trend, but more broadly. Uh, I think there were quite a uh, you know, number of products and offerings on just replicating the hedge fund universe in general. Um, and you know, I think it, AQR has had an interesting place uh, within that whole conversation. I think we, we think that there are ways to try to model and capture the essence of certain hedge fund strategies. Like again, trend is one example, time series momentum, Kind of saying, okay, we're going to look at you know one to twelve month returns applied over a set of liquid markets. If you repeat those rules, you're going to get a return stream that looks and feels quite like what you see in historical trend following live returns. That's one way to do it. Whereas I think hedge fund replication, one particular format that that was popular back then, and maybe what you're seeing now in uh, this more recent mutual fund space in managed futures, is more using a regression approach or some fitting approach. Uh, where you're using a, a, a small set of liquid futures to try to approximate the positioning of some index. And I would say, uh, you know, they, they have different merits, but one of the challenges with the replication approach is that uh, you wouldn't, you know, just conceptually, you wouldn't be able to benefit if there were trends in markets outside of the liquid markets you're using. Uh, so to give you an example, uh, if you're only using oil and gold and you know as your commodity proxies, if there are big trends in oil and gold, you'll probably do a pretty good job capturing those profits as well, like traditional CTAs. But uh, if the trends are in natural gas or in electricity uh, and you don't have that exposure, even if crude oil is correlated to electricity prices, if electricity prices go up 10x and crude oil prices go up 20%, 
the profit potential is quite different uh, in the replicated portfolio versus the actual kind of portfolio that mimics what a trend-following strategy would do. So I guess in short, I would say the more replication approach using a narrow set of liquid futures works well if the major trends end up happening in those large markets, which for example, last year, obviously fixed income was the, the most important trend. And you know most of that happened in the most liquid treasury US market. Uh, however, if there are other periods where trends are happening in a more diverse set of markets that are not represented in the replication set of futures, uh, there could potentially be a larger discrepancy in the returns. Uh, and so our view overall is we still always prefer to be able, even if you're taking a common investment style and trying to replicate it, uh, and, and using that word, we would prefer a more kind of trying to actually do the strategy rather than just run a regression and try to mimic the statistical properties of the strategy. So I think those are two very different ways of quote unquote replication uh, of a strategy. And and you know, and the main flaw I think with the with the narrow set of futures is that uh, you can't actually necessarily get the returns uh, if your set of futures doesn't include the actual trends that are happening. What about the risk management, Yao, when you do regression? I, I'm Again, I'm not a quant here, so so you're the expert. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking, kind of thinking out loud, that if you're just trying to guess what people's positions are, you don't really know what they should be because you don't, you're not running a model. Um, how can you even apply risk management to that? Yeah, I, I suppose that you you can still do some risk management after you do the regressions to look at your final output and try to scale it. But you know, if you don't, then you're pr- probably relying on your estimates of what the risk of the index is. And if you get that wrong, you could be running at much lower risk or higher risk than the actual managers are doing. And yeah, the other thing that's challenging with any kind of backward-looking replication is that, rather than a model, is that if there's an abrupt shift in trends or abrupt shift in risk-taking levels, it's going to take a little while before your regression picks that up. So again, uh, there's sort of lots of reasons why you would expect some pretty healthy tracking error between the two. Um, so I, I agree that from a risk management perspective, we think that uh, being able to actually run the underlying strategies is much more, allows you to do much better risk control. Maybe just to, to follow up on the on the theme of number of markets, um, yeah, and and also from the perspective of the alternative markets, which you've added um, now as part of kind of you know the, the the diversified trend strategy, have you given consideration? I'm sure you have, but tell us uh, what, what the findings are in terms of adding these peripheral markets and the ability to achieve the kind of the convex risk profile um, from the perspective of you know obviously in when we get a shock you know. Uh, COVID type thing, obviously economically sensitive markets will react, but in some of the more alternative markets, you might think they may not, you know, they may trade more on idiosyncratic factors. So you might be less likely to get a, a, a particular trend in those markets. Uh, has that been a consideration? Is that is it a valid point or, or not? Yeah, no, it, it is a valid point. And we do, because, you know, of our focus on this dual mandate, we do pay a lot of attention, not just to if you add a new market, what the additional return is going to be. But we also care greatly about, well, how will it affect our overall 
strategy's expected performance during a shock or during a, a downturn for equity markets. Um, so I think when we have looked at alternative trends more broadly, and again, being AQR, we have a paper on this we, we wrote five years ago called Trends Everywhere that looks at the academic evidence for these alternative market trend strategies. What we see is there is still a convex profile for trading in alternative markets. It's perhaps a little slightly less pronounced than the traditional liquid markets because you are not trading directly. Let's say you're not short equity markets when the equity markets are falling because you don't trade equity markets. But there are enough related uh, markets that you still do get um, you know, these big moves happening in many dis- disparate areas of a- different asset classes, different markets that lead to profits for trend in a big enough move. So when we've looked at our live experience trading alternative markets, let's say in the COVID period or throughout the first nine months of last year when equity markets were suffering, we saw some very large moves happen as well outside of traditional markets that led to strong profits uh, for alternative markets. So I guess you would say in conclusion, we think alternative markets still retains that convex profile um, but it, it perhaps uh, in specific situations, it could be a little bit less direct than the traditional market set. But nevertheless, you know, as long as there are large moves happening in these alternative markets as well uh, during periods of market stress, uh, that you know creates opportunities for that same convex payoff. So last year was a great example. You know, you saw uh, equity markets really struggle, and uh, as part of that, you also saw more alternative markets like electricity markets in Europe really go up. And you might say, well, those are not necessarily so related. I mean, the Europe European summer was unusually warm, but there is some link in the sense that, you know, the war that broke out was a big cause of market volatility, both for equity markets and commodity markets. And the kind of high inflationary uh, kind of overall picture that affected equity markets obviously also affected the people's expectations of how much energy prices would, would, would need to go up uh, over time as well. So I think there are linkages there as well from a fundamental perspective. No, fair enough. Um, can't you we're running up in time? Maybe I, if I could ask just one more before I pass it back. Um, and it's uh, really from the perspective, obviously, AQR, big asset manager, you mentioned, you know, running long only and alternative strategies. So really, you have the full gamut of building blocks available to you. So just curious, you know, if you're pre- generating the, 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 hard to say the best portfolio, but say for a long-term investor and you've got all of these uh, style premia, uh, alternative risk premia, long-only factors available to you, what, how do you think about what's that portfolio look like and specifically what's the role of trend following in it? For, and particularly versus other alternative strategies, do you think it, it would weigh more heavily on trend versus others? Yeah, well, we have very real life uh, you know, implementations of this because we do run broad multi-strategy alternative portfolios for many investors. And trend is a pretty important component of them. Uh, and that comes from the standpoint of it is one of multiple uh, return streams, alternative return streams that we think are diversifying to traditional portfolios and diversifying to other alternative portfolios. Uh, and the convexity profile is quite unique to trend that shows up much more strongly in trend versus, let's say, 
you know, equity market neutral strategies or arbitrage strategies, which almost in some cases have like arbitrage strategies tend to suffer more if there is a liquidity shock or something like that. Uh, so trend is very valuable in, in providing diversification as well to other alternative strategies, not just traditional stocks and bonds. So they feature quite prominently in all the multi-strategy portfolios that we construct for investors. Um, and if anything, I think over time, we have moved toward increasing the importance of trend over the, over the last 25 years because of some of those attractive characteristics within those multi-strategy portfolios. Yeah, uh, but I, I guess the other question is, is there still a, a value to having the other alternative strategies when you go to combine these with, with, with say, equity factors? Are you, I mean, are you picking up some kind of equity beta or bond beta with some of the other alternative risk premia? Or are you very conscious of trying to avoid that? Yeah, so it, it really depends on what the client or investor objective is. I guess at a broad level, if you have a multi-strat hedge fund where trend is only uh, a part of it, um, then the convexity profile of that overall hedge fund is going to be less pronounced than a pure diversified trend-following offering. So we do, it really depends on the end investor's objectives. We have investors who really want to focus on a trend solution and care a lot about the convexity. And there we would sort of recommend just focusing on the trend elements that we provide. Uh, the clients who are in the multi-strategy portfolios where trend is only a portion of the, the risk uh, do understand that in a kind of equity stress period, it's not going to perhaps look uh, as convex as a pure trend solution. So there, it's, it's again that trade-off. We go back to the higher sharp ratio uh, versus the convexity uh, kind of dual mandate. Uh, so think of a multi-strat AQR fund as being more, uh, maybe a little bit more heavily tilted toward the higher sharp, a little bit less weight toward the convex profile, whereas for trend, it's much more balanced between the two, maybe even a little bit tilted toward higher convex uh, at that dead sharp. Just a couple of questions um, before we wrap up. Um, I wanted to ask you one thing, and it, it's a little bit about liquidity. It's a little bit about capacity. But in the last uh, 10 or so years, you've had a big difference, let's put it this way, in the amount of money you had to uh, deploy in trend. What, what have you learned from seeing these changes? Is there a limit uh, to how much firms can run in trend without it having an impact uh, on performance, or our markets just become so liquid today that the limit is much bigger than any of us really will ever get to. Yeah, no, we have had um, experience running these strategies at very large size. So what I can say is that there there are definitely capacity limits or considerations uh, for all strategies, including trend. Uh, but it's it's really a the function of the underlying size of the market. So if you were to run trend following on U.S. treasuries and the U.S. stock indices and the major stock indices, uh, I don't think that trend as a whole, even as a whole industry, ever came close to being too big of a part of those markets. So I don't, I don't personally believe that we've seen any evidence that the trend strategies, uh, maybe difficult performance in that, that decade was due to the size of the industry. There's really, again, doing academic studies or simple studies, there isn't really a strong 
relationship between the AUM of the industry and, and the actual returns has a lot more to do with underlying macro movements. Um, that being said, I think when you go to the smaller markets uh, and you know these things don't go linearly, right? The drop off between the difference between the liquidity of a U.S. ten-year Treasury uh, and an emerging market bond is very different, right? It drops off quite differently, quite quickly. Uh, there, there is definitely a consideration for capacity as it relates to both the amount of transactions costs that you have to pay once you get past a certain size that that can go up quite quickly, um, and also the ability to you know have a large enough position to matter uh, within a fund. Uh, and so I absolutely think that capacity considerations are more pronounced for things like alternative markets. And clearly you do see that, like the industry, the way it's fallen out. Alternative markets programs are much smaller. They get capped much earlier, uh, whereas the liquid piece is an order of magnitude larger uh, in AUM. And I don't believe that any manager, large manager, really says in the liquid markets, we are anywhere close to closing our funds. So, so I think it's a pretty big difference depending on the size of the underlying markets. But we are always concerned about capacity because any good strategy uh, with too much capital behind it, uh, it's going to make it harder to, make, to to generate returns going forward. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Now, I mentioned this question to you earlier where I said that uh, one of the things people say when I ask this question is that they, um, they, they you know, they disagree a lot when people say trend following is, is easy. If I were to ask you, what's the one thing that you hear about trend following that you disagree with, with the most? What, what would that be? Uh, I think it's one of the things that we had talked about earlier, which is the uh, how, you know, it's people have a sense that it's easy to time, I think. Uh, in, in, and again, they may not say that outright, but in their investment decision-making, when you hear comments like, well, I don't think, yeah, I, I like the idea, but I don't think I want to get into it now because I think markets are going to start recovering and trend is going to kind of dilute my returns. That, that's implicitly saying, oh, I think the returns of the stock market or the bond market are going to be higher than trend following. And that's maybe timing a bit of both trend and timing traditional markets as well. Um, and so I think that really undermines the usefulness uh, within the portfolio. We've also heard the opposite, uh, you know, in the last few years, there are some investors who say, well, you know, I think uh, trend is probably not going to do well going forward for a little while because, you know, there's no volatility and, and, and I'll get it when volatility, you know, gets higher. <laughs> uh, but then now you're seeing, well, volatility is very high, but, you know, it just had a very good run. So maybe uh, I'll, I'll hold off until <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's some mean there's, reversion. So yeah. I, I think the whole concept of uh, looking at it as a trade rather than a strategic allocation is something that uh, we really try to, you know, convince people not to do because we haven't seen that uh, really lead to any good outcomes. Uh, no, 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 uh, absolutely. The final question now for you, um, really just curious about what, what you're most excited about as you look into 2023 and if there's any concerns that you might have. Uh, it can be an old topic. Yeah, um, I mean, we are excited about the, I think the kind of resurrection of, uh, you know, recognition that diversification beyond stocks and bonds is is crucial. I think 2022 was a, a wake up call and, and you have we have a lot more investors talking to us about, you know, what should I do now that the stock and bond correlation is no longer negative uh, as it used to be. And, and you know, last year fixed income didn't help as much as I or didn't hurt a lot, actually, uh, in a year when I had hoped it would help my equity allocation. 
So I think the most exciting thing is that investors are now kind of waking up to the fact that we do need additional tools within our portfolio that are truly diversifying. Uh, trend is obviously a huge good piece of that to answer to that question. But as, you know, as I say, AQR also runs multiple other strategies that also fit the bill. Uh, so it, it's, it's been exciting in terms of being able to re-engage. There's a lot of energy, I, I feel like, both on our side and also on the investor side of wanting to delve deeper into these kind of questions on how do I really diversify my portfolio? How do I really you know, make an impact in my portfolio if inflation stays high, if equities go through another tough period? Uh, and I think for a while, the whole world had been lulled into a sense of complacency uh, uh, when the 60-40 portfolio was just doing extremely well uh, for a very long time. So that overall, I think, recognition of the fact that we diversifiers are important uh, and we want to you know, learn more about them and engage with them with our clients, that, that's, that's, that's kind of very, very exciting for us. Yeah, no, I think that's a great uh, place to uh, end our conversation uh, for today. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and insights and keep all the good research coming that uh, you, Cliff, and, and others at AQR uh, produce. It's certainly very helpful to keep these conversations uh, going. And we hope we can do this uh, again sometime in the future. And to all of you listening today, I hope that you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged. As we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry, and in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources you can find on our website. And of course, not least, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.